Welcome to No Name Podcast, Ukrainian podcast on cybersecurity. This is our international series where we talk to cybersecurity experts all over the world to discuss cyber domain of the war, make new connections for Ukrainian infosec community and learn from our foreign colleagues. Our guest today is uh, Margaret Smith, a uh, US uh, Army cyber officer and army planner at Department of the Army Military Operations also an academic uh, who holds PhD in public policy and administration. She's assigned as a scientific researcher um, at the uh, Army Cyber Institute and assistant professor of American politics at West Point United States Military Academy. That's a very outstanding combination of uh, experiences. Uh, Maggie, thank you for joining <laughs> and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, so in previous uh, episodes, we briefly touched on the topic of uh, how military experience uh, helps cybersecurity specialists. Uh, but your background is totally unique because uh, you represent both military and academia. So could you tell us a bit more about your past in, cyber in cybersecurity and how you arrived to be where you are? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm a, I'm a bit of a, a mutt, which is an American term we call dogs that come from, you know, a whole different kinds of species that don't have a specific uh, lineage. And so I, I don't really come from one background, but I'm the kind of this accumulation of different experiences that have put me in this kind of sweet spot of experience where I can have an impact in today's kind of geopolitics and uh, in that type of environment. So I, originally I enlisted in the military, which for um, non-military people, that means that I entered as a, as a soldier, not on the officer side. And, um, And I literally took the job that had the highest bonus, <laughs> which was a, um, a pretty shallow way to approach a career. But, um, but it got me into the, the signal side of the Army, or what I um, jokingly call kind of the Verizon of the, of the Army, where understanding how the Army communicates, getting to learn signal flow, and how um, data can travel between one point to another. And that type of background was unlike anything I had studied in school, but it um, opened the world to understanding how computers work, how they come together, how the different disparate parts and components of a computer can be um, you know, pulled together to create this machine that gives us so much insight and ability to communicate throughout the world. Um, so that was where my passion really became ignited uh, when I understood how signal actually flows and uh, how people can communicate. And then it transitioned. I've always been interested in political science. Um, and so bringing those two worlds together uh, is pretty much the, the way things are going in the world where you can't really disconnect cyber from anything that we do these days, whether it's communicating, um, even doing, you know, doing our podcasts, we're connecting in and through cyberspace. And so thinking about state activities in cyberspace and how that relates to their geopolitical connections, relationships, alliances, and international communities, um, international organizations, all of that is super fascinating to me. And that's kind of how I ended up in the space that I exist today. Uh, so it's been a really fun journey. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's uh, something that I, I never have, there's never not any work to do, I guess. Yeah, and I, I guess, the <laughs> The more the more time we spend on something, the more work there is to do. Um, yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and uh, what are the specific of cybersecurity jobs in the army? Do you collaborate uh, with private companies a lot? Uh, how how does it look like? 
Yeah. So for the um, the United States military, we have a you know a confusing mix of organizations that all are focused on on cybersecurity. Whether it's in the public sector or our government agencies, we have the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Um, which is a government organization that looks at domestic cybersecurity issues. And then, you know, we have the military cyber components, or we call those the cyber mission forces. And then also a large part of uh, critical infrastructure around the world is owned by private industry. And so necessarily because of those different interests, whether it's in the private sector, um, thinking about the financial sector, for example, so much happens in and through cyberspace that, um, you know, the global economy is really hinged on our ability to access cyberspace and those systems that exist. Um, and so you can't do anything without the intersection of, of government and private sector, as well as public interest, right? Uh, and I think Ukraine is an excellent example, a conflict there of of where those intersections happen, where we've seen Microsoft be a very vocal um, reporter, researcher on the conflict that's going on in cyberspace within the confines of, or thinking about it in the context of the Ukrainian um, conflict that's ongoing. So with military, the types of jobs are, um, you know, on the, the defensive side where you're looking at network security and trying to understand and assess what the government footprint, what the Department of Defense footprint looks like in cyberspace. So that logical layout of where our devices are, what's connected, what systems we need to secure, and how those may be vulnerable to attack or infiltration or exploitation. And then on the offensive side, thinking about ways that we can leverage capabilities, tools, assets in and through cyberspace to have an impact on the um, kind of the global continuum of competition and uh, how to best, you know, uh, do things so that our strategic security context is in favor to, um, to the US and our allies, if that makes sense. So there's a lot of room for imagination. And I think that one of the coolest parts about um, working in cybersecurity is that new devices and technology are introduced all the time. And so there's the never ending evolution of the types of jobs that you can do. And, um, you know, it could be that a new system is added and that creates a whole new type of job that is required for military persons to, to do. So I think what I love about it most is just that it's, um, you have to get really comfortable being uncomfortable in this space because you never know what the next threat is going to look like and you never know what the next type of technology is going to introduce those vulnerabilities that it may introduce into your environment. So there's a definitely defensive, offensive, and then the whole spectrum in between that, um, which makes a wide variety of opportunities for, for people, even people like me who like the softer side of the science and the geopolitics and thinking very strategically. Right, and perhaps cybersecurity is just something that spans across so many different areas because yeah. you, you need it in intelligence, you need it in just like regular, uh, you know, domestic uh, security, and also even in combat-oriented um, parts of the military where you know you still need to protect communications. Yeah, um, communications yeah. and even just the systems. Um, you know, technology is being incorporated into more and more warfighting systems. And so um, being able to protect the systems that make weapons work and, and things like that is also critical. Yep. And uh, how important is academic and scientific research for state to keep initiative in cybersecurity? 
So this is a great question. I think um, I think it was two years ago, maybe three, that General Nakasone, who is the commander of United States Cyber Command and also the director of the National Security Agency, he created what's called the Academic Engagement Network. And it was this recognition that academic research, uh, because technology changes over so quickly and evolves so fast, that academic research and academics were going to be critical to uh, how United States Cybercom and the broader US government thinks about its strategy in and through cyberspace. And so I think increasingly it's being recognized that the work that's done on the academic side has a real nexus with ongoing and current operations and that there's greater need to interact with the academic community on a more regular basis to be able to truly understand what the technology is capable of, where it's going, and to be able to look kind of at over the horizon threats that might be coming down the line for through the military perspective, like getting the academic perspective to inform how you think about military future operations. So increasing, mm -hmm. I would say. Uh, was this like, you know, questions about collaborating with private sector, with academia? Mm -hmm. Um, how, how do you align, I guess, right? Because uh, in private sector, I think, you know, still companies are driven by, you know, uh, by profit. And um, in academia, I think, you know, in many cases, like for really groundbreaking research, you're not sure about yeah. results, right? Uh, so, uh, you know, it looks like there are many challenges. And, you know, if you have any kind of idea how it's been solved uh, in the U.S., uh, I don't think it has been solved yes. in the U.S. <laughs> um, okay. I think, yeah, well, the competing, I think, the biggest challenge is that you have so many stakeholders in cyberspace, to include private individuals, right? Um, we have seen an increase in cybercrime, for example. And so even when we're thinking about a nation state trying to understand its strategic security environment, there's this dynamic of this individual in cyberspace and the outsized impact that any one individual may have given the right resources on a state's security. So I think the, the complexity of our strategic security context has only is continuing to increase. And so the competing motivations of all of those actors also play a large role in how we approach the problem set of, of cyber threats or threats that are emanating in and through cyberspace. So um, I don't think we've, we don't have the perfect mix because there are going to be those private sector interests where corporate, um, corporate profit is really the main goal. And they also have, um, when we think about private companies, we have to consider the board and the, the state, the shareholders. So if it's a publicly owned, or excuse me, publicly traded company, and they um, and people own stock in it. Those people have a say in ha in the direction of that company, and so those types of interests get really complicated when we're talking about and trying to impose kind of national security interests on those companies too. Especially, um, more complexity is added by the fact that a lot of companies are multinational. So think about like Coca Cola, for example, um, that has you know, divisions and branches all around the world. And it's, you know, it's just this massive company. Um, when we think about what their strategic interests may be uh, versus what the strategic interests may be of the United States, like those are competing probably in many ways because markets are different and concerns are different. Um, so I think the U.S. is in a state where a lot of, this administration has published a lot of, of good 
policies and strategies and executive orders that have guided trying to craft a new coherent strategy for cyberspace that incorporates and recognizes the importance that the private sector plays um, in our ability to secure cyberspace to the extent that you can. Mm -hmm. But it's super challenging and I mean, we don't have it figured out. Um, I'm working with some researchers, um, Dr. Greta Nassi, who is of the um, University of Bocconi in Milan, in Italy. Her and I have been thinking through um, how to create public value or this notion of public value when we look at cybersecurity policy. So thinking about what the end state should be of that policy and um, moving beyond just the direct impact of cybersecurity and thinking about the ways that second and third order effects can generate public value. So wh what public value can we get at from securing the financial sector? How can we translate imposing cost on the financial sector to be more secure into a different perspective that focuses on the public value that is generated from having a secure financial sector. Um, and so really trying to shift the frame of reference on how we think about cybersecurity policy and strategy um, to really emphasize the public good that can come out of, of having um, coherent and interacting um, cybersecurity strategies. Uh, we yeah, keep, interesting. Yeah. We keep uh, discussing the definition and dynamics of cyberspace among all listeners yeah. and cybersecurity professionals in Ukraine. Um, obviously, there are still many myths that come from the physical dimension, right? Such as the uh, existence of ultimate cyber weapons that you can use right. by pressing a button or analogies between nuclear and cyber threats. Uh, what is your take on the role um, of cyberspace uh, during the war? And for our listeners, I'm, of course, alluding to, to Maggie's uh, uh, paper that she co-authored um, just this year, where they analyze uh, the uh, development, yeah, the dynamics of cyberspace uh, during the Russian invasion in Ukraine. Yeah, I think, um, so in the United States, at least, there was uh, a lot of discussion when it was became clear publicly that... Um, Russia was massing forces and intended to invade. Uh, there was a lot of discussion about a sh cyber shock and awe, and um, and that what we would see was this massive cyber campaign that would um, attempt to shut down the country before um, before any bullets flew. And I think fascinating part about the conflict in Ukraine, the the most recent that's ongoing, is how partnerships and resiliency can really uh, play a role in a state's susceptibility to an onslaught of, um, you know, capabilities trying to penetrate and disrupt in and through cyberspace. And so I think Ukraine did a lot of work in between um, 2014 and 2022 to build out a much more robust infrastructure. And that in many ways won the day um, and prevented a lot of the, the shock and awe that a lot of Western researchers really anticipated. I think the best example of, of where this, um, where the complexity comes in, in the challenges is the, the Viasat hack that was at the opening. Um, because the attack in and of itself, if you look at it from an operational perspective was successful, but the strategic impact that that attack was intended to have did not happen. Um, and in part because we had that third party actor swoop in and provide and help um, build redundant communications for Ukraine 
in a very quick manner, but of relying on cyber weapons, for lack of a better term, as, as part of your campaign plan or strategy in a military conflict. Because even if your operation is successful, it may not have the intended strategic impact that you wanted it to have based on either that uh, the victim's preparation or the victim's ability to be resilient and have um, alternate ways to kind of mitigate the, the impact of that cyber operation. And so when we talk about, um, there's a great documentary by David Sanger called The Perfect Weapon that takes a look at the, the Stuxnet malware and um, the fallout from that, that I think is, is he also wrote a book. It's based on the book. Yeah, I'm looking at a lot of his yeah. book. I'm pretty sure he has it. Yeah, yeah and, and so at the, it's, it's a good book. Um, but I think... I don't, I don't know yet. You haven't read it yet? I was presented with the Ukrainian translation, but... It's oh, you, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting look at, um, at Stuxnet and breaks it down. But I think what's so fascinating about cyberspace and what really keeps me thinking about this problem set is um, is just how hard it is to have kind of the stars align and everything go right so that you have the strategic impact that you intended to have at the time and place of your choosing. Because um, as we know, like you can take your, you know, your phone and, and update it and that um, the operating context, the operating system is different than it was before you did the update. Um, I almost didn't update my phone because I wanted to keep the Twitter bird on my icon. And uh, now it's an X, but, and I resisted forever because I was like, I want to keep the bird. Um, I still, have, if I still we think, have a bird, you know, if you, you still have, have a, a group on iPhone, if you have a group of apps like social networking in one group, and uh, it's still cached as a bird, but when you enter the group, it's already an X. When you enter the bird. Um, so little things like that, just being able to update something, you know, changes the, the context of that operating system. And so an, an, a capability that may have worked yesterday could have been rendered obsolete by that one update. And so when we and talk so about it as a perfect that weapon, is go why, ahead. That is why we invented cumulative uh, strategic effects, just to avoid the obligation to provide them as a result of one operation. Do, yeah. do you find it funny? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And well, so in the US history, uh, this is something that I think is really interesting when we look back at US history and cyberspace. Um, so originally, United States Cyber Command was nested under US Strategic Command. And that Strategic Command is the command that, um, you know, we have our nuclear weapons and, and our big strategic assets fall under US Strategic Command. And so the placement of US Cyber Command as a sub-unified command under US Strategic Command implied that we considered cyber weapons as something as significant as, say, a nuclear weapon. And so I think when we think the mentality that goes into understanding it as a perfect weapon or a weapon that can um, be decisive in battle and then, um, you know, is, is important to understanding the evolution of U.S. cyber strategy. And uh, it's now its own combatant command, or it's its own command now, U.S. Cyber Command. It's a four-star command now. And so that shows how it's um, migrated out from underneath the nesting of strategic command and become a, a, a command that is um, considerable impact in and of itself. 
I have two questions here. Yes. Uh, do you agree with the theory, historic theory, that uh, placing cyber command uh, inside strategic command was uh, a policy mistake uh, of uh, Reagan administration, uh, mostly inspired by the uh, cultural effect of uh, War Games movie? Uh, yeah. So <laughs> there, there is interesting. A, <laughs> there, there is a theory that um, uh, I I think they were they were frightened because that's uh, one of the movies that not only uh, described and um, presented the old fears in a new way, it actually synthesized and um, demonstrated the new fears that we may have, right? And uh, Reagan being an actor uh, was somewhat impressed by the plot and uh, uh, the administration just had to do something and that's the best they came up with. <laughs> uh, and the second is... Um, uh, how how do you think it uh, um, could it could it be better if if um, if the U.S. just avoided all this part of uh, evolution and started from scratch and uh, not uh, uh, required to maintain all this shared vocabulary with the strategic uh, arms uh, thinkers? You know all these deterrence theory. Yeah. Uh, practitioners uh and and so you know what i mean right so i do w w first of all do you agree with the premise and second uh would it be better if it's just started somewhere in early 2000s and evolve uh, as a thing of its own yeah i think both of those are interesting questions um i would have to give more thought about where they would place it other than i think the placing it within strategic command made sense at the time because it was unclear um where else how yeah it was <laughs> unclear where else and it was also i think the concept was new and that policymakers didn't know what the how to predict unintended consequences or um or how powerful uh, using and doing things in and through cyberspace to have an effect on an adversary could be. Mm -hmm. um, and so in order to contain it, they put it within uh, a command where high scrutiny was required and uh, very senior level approvals were required in order to take action. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I think it's also, I think if you look back at our history, there was very much a policy of restraint. Um, and that really shifted in 2018 when uh, our new National Defense Authorization Act was signed that really expanded some of the authorities of Cybercom and took Cybercom out from underneath strategic command and made it its own uh, four-star entity. We, and so we that all observed it very closely with uh, a lot of excitement. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we did too from the inside because it was an expansion of authorities and, and an understanding that we were actually going to be able to do, um, to do more, more things in and through cyberspace. Mm -hmm. So 
I think it was a natural evolution where the U.S. was originally in this policy of restraint um, in the middle of 20 years of counterterrorism operations and then evolved into a much more aggressive approach towards it. And I think that aggressive that 2018 really opened the doors to a lot of the international collaboration that we've been able to see over the last five years. And I think that is where we need to be because it mm -hmm. isn't, you can't just take a state approach to cybersecurity. It really has to be an international collaboration of like-minded entities who want cyberspace to sustain um, kind of the freedom of movement that it has, but also be as secure as possible and used to good ends instead of bad. Um, and then your second point about um, evolving on its own, there's a there's a big debate going on right now in the U.S. about creation of um, a standalone cyber force, similar to how um, the past administration created Space Force. And so that dynamic is taking place. Uh, it was, you know, in the Senate version of the, the Defense Act that was just passed, or this, yeah, Act. They are looking at doing a study to see what it would look like if we created a standalone cyber force. Um, and so I think part of that recognition is that within the U.S. military, there's very uh, strong cultures in each service. So the Navy has a strong culture. The Army has a strong culture. Marines, Coast Guard, all of that national defense structure is very culture oriented and very domain oriented. Um, the Army, obviously, is very focused on land power. Um, and so there's the talk in discussion is, should we have an independent cyber command um, or cyber force that is able to take on the domain of cyberspace as its own entity so that it can man, train, and equip uh, its forces just to solely focus on cyberspace, not cyber security or cyber efforts for the army, not cyber security or cyber efforts for the Navy, but to really give a holistic, you know, group of uh, individuals that are solely focused on understanding cyberspace and, and U.S. strategy in that in that domain. Um, so that's going to be, be interesting to see how the next few years play out um, with that debate and that study as ongoing. I I bet that if it ever happens, uh, the commander of this new cyber force will still be the director of NSA. Anyway, that yeah, that's uh, that's another discussion that's been continuously going on um, as to whether uh, that role should be bifurcated or split, or whether it should stay together. Uh, and that has not been resolved yet either. Um, I, I, I can't imagine what amount of uh, additional coordination the meetings to attend and the memos to write and read would be introduced into the process if this role is ever split. <laughs> yeah, it would be. Uh, yeah, it would be complicated, especially given that the the evolution of kind of U.S. Cyber Command has really gone hand in hand um, with its role in the with the agency. Yeah. Thank you. Interesting questions. Uh, coming back to Hollywood, right? So uh, oh. I, I would, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't honestly blame uh, Hollywood that much like a war games movie from 80s. So my understanding is that we are just not there yet, right? Uh, because in the movie, we actually have AI controlling nuclear weapons, right? Yeah. And that's something that, you know, uh, kind of this current discussion about uh, cyber weapon and, you know, cyberspace, uh, we still focus more kind of on isolated cyberspace. 
but with the times of digitalization, with the boom of AI technologies, right? So in future, it, it may change. I mean, we can come back to this movie. So um, do you guys agree that we shouldn't uh, slow down and still kind of if we started from this, okay, from this, you know, fantastic movie that, okay, we need to take uh, cyberspace serious. Uh, and uh, it looks to me that we are a little bit slowing down, right? That, okay, no big impact uh, during the real war, but uh, it can change in future, right? What do you think? Slow down pace of development or slow down? Yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of, you know, investing in, in defense, investing in... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, we can't really slow down. If, 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 right. if anyone slows down, everyone else just uh, gains relative advantage. So I, I don't think it's... <laughs> it's possible. But in this case, Hollywood was actually useful, right? So that movie scared uh, everybody. Oh, so Hollywood is always that's... useful. I'm just, just <laughs> what I'm concerned with, just, just to maybe highlight that I, I'm not criticizing uh, the US approach uh, in, in any way. I, I'm just, I just think it's funny. And I, I'm not encouraging you oh, to yeah. criticize it because uh, we just have Agreed. to learn from it. What I'm concerned with is that states and um, uh, entities that did not have uh, any stake in like nuclear weapons, you know, it did not possess any, did not have any allies, uh, alliances with the states that had uh, some, right? They still learned from the US who uh, developed a doctrinal approach based on this historic circumstance that was not very practical in my humble opinion. You know, so it, it's just that second and third order effects of uh, the U.S. going the way uh, in the uh, like advanced guard of, of the cyber cyber arms development. Yeah, made a lot of analogies with uh, uh, strategic uh, weapons thinking. Right, and all the theories around it, and the ground basis of of, of the policy um, of it, right? And I I just don't think it's it's very practical. It just distorts the thinking. It creates a lot of unnecessary and even harmful analogies, and uh, does not does not prove any point and suggest any resolutions of the problems that we have at hand right now. And instead of like researching the cyberspace its structure its uh, imperatives its uh, ways of uh, contacting each other and being in conflict with each other we just try to think by analogy and it harms our productivity that's all <laughs> yeah i think a lot of people shut down when um like they you know say, I don't understand this stuff when you talk about, when people talk about technology. Uh -huh. um, and so that's obviously present in the, the military forces as well. Um, walking into a room and saying you're a cyber officer, people are like, oh, you're one of the smart ones, can't talk to you, you know, too much, that type of stuff. Um, so I think in so many ways, uh, a lot of the analogies that we use to describe how to employ cyber effects or how to um, or how the cyber domain actually works the analogies to the physical space um, are an attempt to get people to understand that technology is not this big scary thing and that you mm. can apply some of the things mm. that you know from the physical space 
to cyberspace to to understand relationships and to understand um, partnerships, dynamics in, in cyberspace. And But I do think that we have to be careful because those analogies only go so far. And at some no, point... Not, not to overstretch. Uh, yeah, not to overstretch it, not mm-hmm. overstate it, and to not allow people to not educate themselves on technology, how it works, um, and the risks associated with introducing new technology, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we need to do better at bringing people along instead of just making analogies to kind of build a bridge, if that makes sense. We'd like to get them over to the mm-hmm. other side of the bridge. Yeah. So I, Certainly. but that's like major policy, like public education type questions, right? <laughs> um, yeah, unfortunately we do so like um, um, maybe unintentionally when we name stuff you know we say cyber war okay i know war i'm like from the military i'm a commissioned officer i i know that stuff so i just start thinking in these categories uh and use metaphors directly forgetting that metaphors have limitations and yeah that could be very harmful uh but yeah I, i i totally agree and thanks for uh highlighting that the public education and uh on on the highest level maybe authorized by the government uh i think it could be a way uh out of this uh bunch of misunderstandings and miscommunication yeah there's um i mean there's a generational aspect to it as well where um i I, i'm very afraid (laughs) of when i'm 80 years old and trying to understand the technology that's being used when i'm 80 um because you know watching uh, my dad's uh 80 years old now and so um even like, we've gone to a lot of uh digital medical records right and so like my dad has a really hard time accessing the digital medical records to see like when his appointments are and things like that and so that generation gap between used to having a printout that says you need to go to this doctor or your you know your your you know, you have to get your immunization on this date, having that all online and digitized now um, is confusing for when you're not used to using that technology and you're, um, you know, in an advanced state. So I think there's, there's that generational impact too. So, um, you know, thinking through ways that the public can get educated on, um, better educated on cybersecurity and understanding what cyberspace actually, how to conceive of it uh, is important. But we do. My favorite analogy to explain why it can be dangerous to um, to present cyber capabilities as weapons, quote unquote, mm-hmm. because when we think about a weapon, I'm, um, you know, having been in the military now for almost 20 years, um, you know, I've I grew up on an M4 or an M- uh, M16. And so when I talk about an M16, if I take it to the range and I shoot a 556 round at a 50 meter target, I know exactly what's going to happen if I'm a good shot and can hit center mass each time. I know the impact. I know what it's going to do to a, if if there's a human there. I know what it's going to do to a human body. But I can look at that target and tell you, um, you know, what's going to happen every time that I shoot it. If I hit center mass, it's going to have the same effect. And cyber weapons, quote unquote, are nothing like that because a capability that I have today 
if I tried to use it tomorrow, it could be made obsolete. But like for a military commander that is, uh, you know, not focused on cyberspace, if I say I have a cyber weapon that can be used, you know, the natural inclination is to think of it like it's a a bullet, a five, five, six round. It's yeah, it's and it's repeatable, a, and it's the same it's, thing. It's a great <clears> and, It's like the the demonstration of fluidity of cyberspace. You just look look the other way for a second. You turn back, and the target is is nothing. And the target's remember. completely different. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the rounds in your magazine you know, are like each one is very different. It's very um, different. Yeah, half and, of them are obsolete yeah. already. Yeah. And so <laughs> that I think go out. <laughs> <laughs> it's just gonna stay there. It's not gonna move. Um. But that also that translates into uh, the difficulty of planning and doing combined arms with cy- trying to incorporate cyber capabilities or cyberspace strategy into a you know a military campaign because um, when you think about the physical consequences of kinetic operations, um, usually that military commander is depending on those physical that physical effect. Mm-hmm. to further their campaign initiatives, right? Mm-hmm. And if cyber capabilities are so transitory or in flux at all times, you cannot guarantee that something is going to be able to be used or be executed at the time and place of your choosing and have the desired effect. And I think that gets really difficult when you're talking to someone who has the care of men and women, um, you know, on their shoulders and Mm -hmm. their strategy is going to dictate in many cases, whether people are going to be targeted back or, or whatnot, or, um, lives are on the line, uh, that, that creates an additional layer of complexity when you're talking about trying to incorporate a cyber capability into a military operation, because you, um, it's, it's less like that five, five, six round where I know if I shoot it and fire it at a target that's 50 meters away, 250 meters away, 300 meters away, I can anticipate the impact that it will have based on the the ground context. And cyber capabilities are not like that. Oh, First of all, I appreciate you using metric systems. Fantastic. <laughs> I was uh, actually just thinking, right? This, this one was good. <laughs> that's that's a that's a great that's a great uh, tool to dismantle the uh, the misunderstanding of the domain. Do we have more? <laughs> Look at his eyes. <laughs> I mean, I think that's I need the that mo- stuff. I, yeah, <laughs> I really need most, this stuff. Um, that's a, the most relevant to me is that, uh-huh. you know, ground commanders have a very specific, you know, when you, when you ask someone to, I mean, we impress it upon our cadets and anyone that's enlisting. And every time that someone gets promoted, um, you know, you retake the oath of office and you know, oops, it's a, it's a huge responsibility on your shoulders when you're talking about you're in a conventional conflict and you are the person that's in charge of arraying forces and you have men and women's lives on the lines and um and then you have you know this for (laughs) being snarky but like this geek come over and say hey i can do this i have this capability and let me let me use it let me let's incorporate it into your plan there's a high level of skepticism that's going to come with that because they have the weight of those lives on their line right and so that especially when they ask the geek so how certain are you right it's it's all gonna 
go according to the plan and they say i have no idea oh no idea and and i think again that that bias at hack that happened at the, the out uh, you know right before preceding and and during the initial days of conflict that really mm -hmm. highlights how something can go exactly as it was planned to go but it, it may not have the intended effect whereas if i a limited effect and be recovered in two weeks yeah. right and and you know in many you know there's there's hypotheses that that was really intended to disable you know ukrainian movement mm -hmm. and mobility and uh their plan kind of hinged on that there's a lot of speculation that that was a key element of their initial campaign and when it didn't go according to plan like that's very obviously detrimental for their purposes and so you know there's a lot of skepticism when it comes to incorporating something and trying to rely on it but that does mm -hmm. i think the the original like that that first piece that we alluded to that um me and my colleagues wrote for SciCon, the one that looks at the cyber activity in ukraine um and surrounding the conflict i think there is a rush to in many ways dismiss cyber as playing a key role in the conflict and i don't think those examples like biasat should discount or discredit the role that cyber capabilities can play in conflict because there has been a robust you know cyber component to this conflict um it has facilitated targeting it has exposed the ways that modern forces are susceptible to attack mm -hmm. because of their digital signatures that they emit it has really highlighted but it wasn't the intended um or it wasn't the anticipated impact that a lot of people uh, thought they would see out of this a modern conflict and the cyber component but it's definitely still there and it's really robust so there's a, a rich data set um to explore surrounding the the conflict yeah you know while we were discussing like this analogy right i was you know trying to think about counter argument just you know to validate it more and it looks like in ideal situations still you can be rather reliable so let's say there is a system in other country uh, unpatched, you know, like not uh, up to date, uh, which controls uh, rocket launcher. And we got like the zero day, right? So, and our POC of this zero day is very confident. So I'm reliable, right? If I execute uh, this, right? If I send this request, right? I'll execute vulnerability um, and they can <clears throat> launch rockets. So that still kind of looks like, you know, I'm pretty confident. The only problem, I guess, it's a level of defense, right? If they have some firewalls, if they have some security there and so on, which make, uh, can make it harder. Or opposite, maybe such situation actually in real life doesn't exist, right? So nobody connects, you know, no, nobody connects the IT. You just can't yes. imagine an example, really. Exactly right. But I mean, like you can imagine yeah. it in theory. Yeah. Let's say, yeah, let's say somebody connects it, right? Uh, so it's possible. So that's why, yeah, I'm thinking about that in future, uh, these dynamics may change, right? Um, so this is kind yeah. of something that, you know, uh, keeps me thinking, yeah. I'm just, I'm just, uh, I'm... Uh concerned that uh, this this kind of thinking it uh, is created by the situation we just have the circumstance that people who are thinking talking and practicing cybersecurity are mostly coming from you know like market and people who uh, who create uh, the weapon system are coming from from the very different place and uh, the people who are like you know hackers <laughs> proverbial hackers who just like think about 
making stuff work the way um, other than intended by the creators. They are not familiar with the creators of weapon system. That, that's what I mean, you know? Mm -hmm, and, uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, weapon platforms are not generally <laughs> having an IP <laughs> routable through the internet. Yep, yep. Yeah, 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 I agree here, yeah. Yeah, there, I mean, the other part of it, too, is that, um, you know, there's been a lot of efforts recently in the U.S. about mandating um, supply chain security and thinking about the, the different components that go yeah, exactly. To make something. At, at some point, the weapon system have some dependencies that are created by the mm -hmm. people who think exactly mm -hmm. <laughs> how hackers think they think, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, and so really understanding, I think that that's part of what, um, well, the pandemic as well as the, the conflict in Ukraine have really, I think, caused the international community writ large to take a much closer look at critical systems and the components that make those critical systems and um, how to make them more resilient, but also how to figure out where in the supply chain or where in the production line access vectors might exist or where there might be security lapses that can be taken advantage of and how to make that make the entire system whose end state might be a weapon system, but how to make that entire system more secure so you have greater confidence that your end state weapon system mm -hmm. is secure. Um, and, but it's, it's, and I think it's just wild how complex some of these supply chains and these production lines are uh, when you look at the defense industrial base for any country um, and how they, they create their arsenals, how they create their um, kind of their military information systems all of that is really complicated and and, uh, and that and creates so much very distributed and it makes so much room for or increases the the attack surface i guess or the vulnerability mm -hmm. um potential yeah. so it's wild and it creates a lot of alex you had something uh in this line just, of discussion uh, you know yeah. you remember that meme from from Chappelle's show uh <laughs> cocaine is a hell of a drug you know all i can think about now is solar winds was a hell of a hack <laughs> yeah yeah and it's yes. you know it it's changed this, a lot of perspectives <laughs> changed a lot of, and i think in addition to that for from the u.s perspective colonial pipeline too was a big wake-up call mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um because the i've written a couple things on this and i find that the attack really fascinating because the impact was really not the the ransom, it was really the social effect that it had on the eastern seaboard of the United States where people were starting to line up at at gas pumps and really took this as like, a, oh my gosh, I'm not going to be able to drive my car. Cars are very important to Americans. So that was a big thing. But the public panic that was created when it was not intended to have any sort of political or public, you know, impact um, was pretty intense over here. Um, which sounds bizarre, but um, but the no, fact no, that no, the it doesn't doesn't yeah, it's, but that it's, I think it's that logical was in the hindsight, but, but yeah. I don't think it was intent. <laughs> no, I don't. Yeah, and so when you look at that, you know the the execution, they didn't even nothing about the infrastructure of moving gas from one place to another was impacted. It was strictly their IT system. And so that like convergence of IT and or the information systems that do the billing and all that type of stuff with the operations technology that govern the 
the big, massive industrial control stuff. Um, that is also of concern. Like we're a much more industrialized and digitized society than um, is probably kind of good for security, but it's an interesting facet of modern life. I have a friend who's very much into prepping and uh, he has like modified Tacoma with an extra tank and thousand mile range. Oh, really? I'm pretty sure he felt like, oh, this is finally my prime time when that <laughs> yeah. hack happened. <laughs> Alex, did you have Here. anything to add uh, or cover on this? Um, this I think like for, for this topic, right, it would be nice to still, you know, ask a little bit more about how, uh, you know, organization uh in us works right so we have cyber command we have uh, cisa we have nsa uh i think we, we touched it already a little bit but maybe for our listeners it would be still uh you know if you can Th that's uh, a question i'm most detail. excited about yeah. yes yes uh, yeah, so, so pretty much um, uh, yeah yeah we have uh within the united states code so our our legal authorities there's uh you know each entity has different lines of authority. So um, Cyber Command is a Title 10 organization, which is our active duty military. Um, so it's considered, and you know, the US has um, a very short history, but um, in compared to European communities. Um, but because of some of the, the thinking that came right out of our Revolutionary War, where the, you know, the placement and lodging of, of British troops on US soil. There was a very clear demarcation between what active duty troops would do um, within the US and, and what their mission was. And so as part of you know a Title 10 organization, active duty military, Cybercom is responsible for things external to the United States. Uh, so that's pretty much, um, or it is codified. And, and then when you look at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA is part of the Department of Homeland Security. And so they're our domestic focus. So they're much more involved in the um, in working with the private sector because such a large portion of the private sector owns our critical infrastructure. And, uh, and so CISA really has that touch point with private industry um, when it comes to any security incidences or issuing notifications of potential hacks or ongoing campaigns that threaten US infrastructure, as well as issuing um, security recommendations for how systems can be secured to, against a specific threat. And, um, and then within that, we have our intelligence community. So the international, the US intelligence community is guided by um, title 50 of US code, and that is all foreign intelligence. Um, and then within this, the United States, we have the Federal Bureau of Investigation or the FBI that focuses on domestic intelligence kind of and uh, law enforcement. And so when you think about those different entities and how they play together, each of them has touch points with the other because coordination and collaboration in cyberspace is critical. If there is a threat to US infrastructure, it could be that United States Cyber Command sees the threat and recognizes it first, which means it passes information over to the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, uh, who would work closely with the FBI to do victim notification and then you know work through um, different avenues to do mediation within those um, companies, depending on their criticality to US infrastructure. And so what is 
you will continuously hear U.S. Um, senior leaders talking about partnerships and collaboration, right? Um, we always hear this and it's kind of that buzzword. But those are critical to getting these agencies to work together because their motivations, their, their mandates and their objectives are, you know, different. But they're all piece of that, um, the greater whole of trying to create the most secure cyberspace for uh, U.S. assets and U.S. interests. And then add on to that, we have Department of State, which does the diplomatic efforts around the globe. And they are touch points in order to be able to uh, request hunt forward operation teams to come forward and help and partner assist on the request of a foreign uh, entity. And um, and so it all really ties together. It's creating this holistic picture of what it looks like to try and defend as well as to best posture the U.S. security interests um, and those of its allies and partners in cyberspace. But those dynamics are pretty well codified in, um, in U.S. law. So it's, you know, intelligence versus Title 10. It's, it's mm -hmm. spelled out and the, the lines of authority are very clear to prevent, a lot of it's to prevent um, civil rights abuses home at home or, um, you know, and to, to ensure that human rights are maintained um, and with a very clear focus on, on uh, being tr as transparent as possible so that the U.S. government and Congress is able to maintain audit authority over, over the operations and the activities of U.S. government um, organizations and agencies. It's complex. And then, yeah. Yeah, even though U.S. in a very unique position where they basically started from scratch just like 300 years ago, still it got it yeah. gets complicated quickly. <laughs> it did. Yeah, if you all you have to do is look around and walk around Washington D.C. and see all of the massive, like big marble buildings that are up, uh, and feel the presence of the United States government that way. <laughs> it's quite massive. Um, but, uh, I have a quick follow-up, right? We've seen all. Maybe it's, you know, really theoretical conflict of interests, but, you know, maybe it's something, uh, something that makes sense. So let's say, it's, you know, FBI agent finds zero-day vulnerability. I think they're interested to protect, you know, uh, citizens uh, and, you know, make it public as soon as possible, notify vendors uh, to make a patch. Um, if uh, somebody from intelligence finds a zero-day, I think they will be thinking how we can use it, right, for some intelligence operations. Yeah. So uh, how to how, 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 yeah. So there how to is, this um, out? Yeah. There's a, there's a specific board and process that, that gets adjudicated at within the U.S., but it's the kind of this age-old tension between um, whether you maintain persistence in, uh, I mean, if we think about intelligence, for example, one of the questions is always, do we continue to maintain this collection asset or is it a military target, right? Um, and that can be in conflict a lot of times. If we think about counterterrorism specifically, do we want to um, target this individual because they are a terrorist from a military perspective, or do we want to keep them um, as an intelligence collection asset? And so those types of dynamics play on, you know, are continuously in conflict. And so there's, uh, you know, it goes through a board and adjudication process to, to understand. Um, when it's best to keep something close hold and when it's best to uh, make victim notifications and notify, you know, patch that. 
um, vulnerability. That's way above my pay grade, but it's definitely, I mean, it's a really, from a social science and political science perspective, there's also um, so many different ways that that could go right or go wrong, because if it gets released later on and it's found out that the U.S. kept hold or the government kept that secret close hold, that can damage public relationships and it damages public trust um, in the system. And so in a democracy like the U.S., those are uh, really heavy questions about that, where it's like the security versus transparency type um, paradigm that is just in constant conflict. What do you keep hold? What do you release? And um, how best to, you know, make decisions that actually benefit the nation instead of um, eroding trust in government? But I think in this case, in in a way, this conflict is the the resolution and and the answer because, uh, on average, that means that you know we we're kind of trying to keep balance. It's not that yeah. Uh, yeah. nothing like that happens in other countries. It's just because there is no conflict in some of these. Uh, you never know. Or everyone yeah. just accepts the status quo that you know yeah. uh, government does whatever. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. No, yeah well, there's always a conflict. Yeah, Say, I think I know an FSB agent finds a zero day. He's always conflicted because he can operationalize it or he can get a bounty payout. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, yeah. different different motivations on that side. Then, but, <laughs> yeah. but, um, but I think, you know, you've also seen a lot of efforts in the United States where there's um, these bug bounty programs, right? Where there's a contest. If you find a bug and you disclose it, like... Um, a lot of co companies do this. Um, the U.S. government has um, some cool programs for youth where it's like hack the satellite um, and different public CISA sponsors, a lot of them, DHS sponsors some of them. Um, but there's a growing understanding that an, a vulnerability that is in widespread in systems um, is really a threat to the U.S. public uh, in a bigger way than it has been before because so many people rely on computers for communication, doing their average work and all that type of stuff. Um, one other thing that just escaped me, what was it that I was going to say? Oh, the, I think what's really a, a good outcome um, um, from the U.S. side, I think from interacting and uh, the the efforts around Ukraine has been, uh, we've really flexed muscles um, within the intelligence and the government community to share information more quickly than we ever have in the past. And I think that has borne fruit. Um, I think we've won some trust in the global community, but it's also really, um, you know, pushed the intelligence and security community to um, come up with ways to minimize intelligence and get it out to um, to the partners and, and people that need it um, in a much quicker manner than has happened in the past, which I think is a really good outcome. And I hope that those um, muscles continue to get flexed. I don't know. I don't know how it works exactly, but I sleep yeah. much better when I know what kind of a red alert that is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I imagine. And I think generally um, the potential for like defense or basically any capability of a country will be probably directly um, um, 
related to the information exchange, the rate of the information yeah. exchange that they can allow. So the, the, the higher the information rate exchange, the, the higher the potential and, and defense capabilities or, or tech capabilities for that matter, depending on what you choose yeah, to do. Yeah, 100%. Uh, I, re I really don't know the shares or numbers between these categories, but I can say that uh, private entities like international companies, like well-established vendors who have really great visibility of things happening in the cyberspace their involvement in this uh, in this equation in this cooperation uh, uh I, I think it's crucial i don't think it's yeah. it's like the the uh, it defines the uh the process uh by itself i think that there are many many um that there are many stakeholders to this uh, but uh without them it would be much harder yeah, it would really much harder. Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, corporations like Microsoft and and Google and some of the threat intelligence that's been happening um, has been really incredible. And speaking of that, uh, there are also other third parties that uh, we want to cover, yeah. right? So. Um, uh, we're talking about things like IT army and hacktivism, right? Which is a third uh, side of the uh, of the conflict here, in a way. And so, in your other uh, second paper, and for our listeners, SICON is a cyber conflict conference uh, organized by NATO. Um, so, uh, third party cyber actors and digital resistance movements during the war. You mentioned. Uh, uh, you mentioned how the IT uh, army avoids common pitfalls through consistency, transparency, responsiveness, and encouragement. So could you tell us a little bit more about those findings? Yeah, I looked at um, my my colleague Tom Dean and I um, investigated the, the IT army's community, the online community, um, their Telegram channel by like through the lens of nonviolent resistance movements. So there's a pretty robust literature that's focused on nonviolent resistance. And uh, some of the hardest things to overcome for a nonviolent resistance movement is interaction with its um, volunteers, uh, for lack of a better term. And so being able to keep those people interested in supporting the effort and uh, and keeping the motivation for action going. And so what's been fascinating is to see the different ways that the IT Army has incorporated a variety of techniques to, to continue to sustain the community of followers that they have and their interest. Um, it's, I, most recently, they've, um, they did a, a couple survey questions where it's like, why do you like, why did you join? Why do you stay? Have you ever thought about leaving? Um, just one off questions there, you just click a button um, to answer the poll question in Telegram. And I think that's a, a really interesting way to get an assessment of what their population looks like and, um, and their motivations for joining. And that can feed into the IT Army's assessment of how they are going to continue to engage. Um, what they started doing early on in their history was providing feedback from operations. So screenshots of uh, websites that are down, um, screenshots of news articles that were discussing the uh, DDoS of a, a specific site that Russians might particularly be interested in on a specific day. And then I think another interesting technique has been to really choose um, their targets quite carefully or thoughtfully in a way that either has, there's an added layer of um, 
irony to the target, I guess, is maybe a way to put it, where it's very creative and you kind of get like bought into just the idea that it's a, you know, a multi-layered psychological impact that a specific uh, attack may have. And then also congratulating the IT army for their success in taking down a specific website on the back end. Um, and so you've, what has been created is this pretty incredible feedback mechanism so that the minute that the IT army is engaging in attack, they can expect within the kind of the same day or a few hours, some sort of feedback on how long that uh, their DDoS efforts kept in sight down. Um, and so it, you know, it generates interest and you also um, feel as though the community responds and reacts to receiving that feedback with uh, congratulations and, and, you know, excited messages and things like that. So I think they've, they've done a very creative approach to building an online community that is, um, you know, at most having a very interesting psychological impact on like what we've seen as a nonviolent resistance movement that's external to the confines of the conflict within Ukraine. Uh, I think when it comes to IT army, there are usually two primary kind of critiques uh, against, uh, right? And one would be more connected to, oh my gosh, now it confuses uh, um, all the things about like policies and war and the parts of the conflict. Like, are these guys involved there? Are they part of the conflict or not? Like, to be honest, I'm not too much concerned with that. It's like, whatever your enemy is presenting you, whether it's uh, according to policies or against, you have to fight back. But another one is that... Um, at the army uh, uh, actions could be in conflict with uh, like more covert and more professional actions uh, of uh, like other maybe government or private parties um and if they act um, like more you know uh planned, uh, prepared and like covertly, then IT army is just kind of like very sloppy, very visible. Like, uh, you know, if someone tries to like maybe plan something on, in some, some of the targets, right? IT army just comes and addresses hell out of it uh, and kind of inter uh, interferes with that. Uh, have you found this to be a problem uh, when you did the research or like basically what, what's your view on this? Um, for the first question, there's a lot of questions, I think, in the international humanitarian law community about what this type of entity means for how we define enemy combatants and then what violence actually, how we define it. Um, and so I think what the entities like the International Red Cross are trying to think through is, um, is disruption to the day-to-day -day activities of an average citizen, does that constitute a form of violence? Um, and so that is, that's a question that I get, um, I've gotten pretty much at every time that I've talked about this. And it's one that really interests me and I haven't done enough research on it to, to really figure that out. But I do think that's an interesting question about how we define enemy combatants and what, um, and what that means for future conflict. But I don't have a, um, any real more to say on that other than I'm thinking about it and it's something I have to think more about. Um, to the latter point, I, I think the, I appreciate the concern and, but I'm not convinced that there's enough intersection between 
strategic state interests and and what the IT army is trying to achieve. And I, you know, I think that when you look at organizations that grow out of a conflict that have a role and purpose on the defense side of things, meaning um, the mission of the IT army is, you know, a free and, and independent Ukraine. And so they are aligned with that strategic initiative of the Ukrainian government, in my opinion. And the fact that the IT army's efforts are traditionally focused on d distributed denial of service, so it's not a permanent break, it's a disruption. I, I don't assess that they have had an impact that's disrupted traditional military activities to an extent that it would be concerning. I think for Ukraine, the benefit of having an entity like the IT army is that it's able to generate international interest I mean, I'm interested in it, and um, a lot of other researchers are as well. It's another way for Ukraine to provide a window to the world as to what they are doing to protect their and fight for their freedom. And so I think that in many ways, the benefits that Ukraine gets from the quasi-publicity that the IT army is able to generate um, outweigh kind of the detrimental effects that could happen if there's kind of a crossing of military initiatives with the IT army initiatives. Um, but that's, I, I, that is something I think that over time more research will be done on um, and that I intend to think about further and do some more research on because I think that's a really fascinating question for future conflict is um, because we've talked about the role of third-party actors and what they mean in cyberspace. They add complexity. They add different motivations um, that states cannot always predict. And so thinking about a state engaging in conflict and then having third-party actors come out on sides of that conflict is um, an understudied phenomenon that has gained a lot of interest because of this conflict. So I think we'll figure more out about it in the future. But it's a really fascinating question that is uh, in many ways to be determined, I think. Right. And I think this might be um, actual for like most volunteering efforts, because the same way yeah. uh, in the first few months, you know, like there were very many stories with like crappy plate uh, plate carriers and, and bulletproof vests and, and tourniquets and anything. Right. Because uh, people just, you know, kind of didn't know what they do. But over time, at the same time, like it kind of through natural selection, people learn and, and improve and net positive effect is uh, much larger for the for the most part positive, even though on individual level, of course, there would be people who kind of suffered from, you know, lack of uh, professionalism or whatever, if someone got yeah. a bad tourniquet, for example. Um, so yeah, yeah that's another, uh, another side to it. Alex, you had, uh, you had some other point here? Uh, <clears throat> no, no, yeah, I think like, yeah, you already answered, right? So uh, I had like two questions, right? Like one, if uh, was IT Army will, you know, uh, m motivate, right? Uh, and inspire like the future, you know, some sort of party actors in future conflicts. But I think, you know, that's already been answered. So we'll see, <laughs> I guess. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a really interesting <clears throat> model. It takes, um, you know, individual motivation and desire to, for, you know, it really taps into the, well, Modern warfare is global warfare in the sense that everybody kind of has a window into the conflict. Um, if you're on Twitter, you can follow what's going on 
in a very different manner. Um, you know, the Arab Spring was really the genesis of that. And so it's a, I think the IT Army has tapped into this, you know, a desire for people that are rooting for, for Ukraine um, to contribute in a, in a, you know, a substantial way that, um, as of now, it doesn't get them in trouble, right? Because, <laughs> um, I mean, and that's another question that's really open about all of this is like, it's probably an international community. So what what do you do with persons that are from a state that's not directly involved in the conflict, but are contributing in a material support type way um, to activities that are done on behalf of the victim in the conflict or the one that's, um, you know, that they're, the side that they choose to support. And uh, I think that's a really interesting phenomenon that um, that international law, international humanitarian law, all that is really trying to figure out um, how we deal with the international kind of combatants that are able to be possible because of cyberspace and it's global. I reach. think in this case, in this case, the law will need to be adapted because unlike uh, the many recent wars, I mean, like after the big, like after the World War II or, or something like that, most of the wars that happened, they were more like between states. And yeah. here the war is not against the state of Ukraine, it's against the, the people of Ukraine, essentially. And so that yeah, changes that's an the interesting, dynamic. Yeah, that's an interesting... Um, that's an interesting nuance that I do think is important. Um, I've been, you know, doing my reading on Ukrainian history, and I may not say this right, but um, but for the Ukrainian people have been a people longer than they have been a state, um, and so I think that idea of what it means to be Ukrainian is really at stake, um, which is interesting and and something that I think is difficult for people in. Um, in America to wrap their heads around, if that makes any sense. I think we need to introduce new paradigm in the system of international law. What happens in cyberspace stays in cyberspace. Stays in cyberspace. Stays in cyberspace. <laughs> so all the punishment to the wrongdoings <laughs> in the cyberspace should be should be executed <laughs> in the cyberspace too. So yeah, I think it will be the strong uh, full stop in this conversation yeah <laughs> and everything will be, will be very very good going forward because all all the all the um illegal dis what what doesn't uh cease to amaze me is that the discussion the loud discussion about the um legal implications of the phenomena of IT army uh, uh is going on mainly um among uh, legal scholars, you know, because no one, no one else is really paying attention. Because, as you said, just put it simply, uh, nothing really uh, bad happens to good people as a result of uh, their activity. Okay, so raising raising uh, all the issues of possible implications in terms of like international law is is. Is, is the way of thinking forward about what can be or is coming next yeah <laughs> nothing more yeah. so uh yeah the net result of it is uh, 
nothing bad really happened people people cooperate in order to like express themselves in support of uh, a nation struggling for its uh, freedom and independence of an imperial uh, x right and that's yeah it. i mean it's uh, yeah <laughs> at this stage yeah nothing's been figured out and um i the i think uh, one concern that i've i've had raised by um members of the international red cross is that what happens when someone by virtue of participating is targeted um because it they're able to figure out where that person is located or or things like that and i think that's something that um the 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 it army actually in some ways addresses because you know encouraging the use of vpns and and mm -hmm. ways to kind of um, obfuscate where your um, support is coming from. But uh, all of that is imperfect. So I think it will be interesting in the event that some repercussion does happen, mm -hmm. what what we understand as the outcome of that. Um, but it's a complicated, um, it's a complicated situation, especially when you consider that a lot of the literature and a lot of the academic research that's been focused on third party actors in cyberspace is really in many ways external to conflict whereas this the it army grew out of this conflict and it's mm -hmm. part of and a component of this conflict and so um past experience has very is limited in how it can inform how we think about this of group course. of individuals yeah so it's it's going to be um but i think it, in addition though i do think that for the international community it has um it has shown how a state can leverage individual talent uh, to effect, right? And so I think that's an interesting dynamic that if you're a nation state considering what the future of conflict looks like, you should probably expect something like the IT army to exist on the periphery of your conflict. And mm -hmm. what does that look like? And how do you, um, what do you do when you have an adversary that has an IT army like entity that is impacting your domestic um, space and and what is your response? I think that's a really interesting question for um, military researchers and strategists and they to think through in the future. I know that we are uh, we, we we have spent more time than uh, yeah we're a little bit running over yeah. Yeah, uh, but I cannot I cannot resist asking one more question. You as sure. an expert in the topic, uh, I expect uh, you to have uh, you you have compared the IT army activity with similar movements, uh, not not maybe very similar but comparable, right? So what surprised me a lot is that they have lasted for for this long and. Uh, the uh, although activity has decreased but they do not seem to go anywhere um uh, despite everyone else uh, may maybe it's my bubble but i do not see the amount and the intensity of activity that anonymous for instance demonstrated in the beginning and the first uh, several months of the of the war right uh so how does it compare to other uh movements like that maybe on the other side uh and uh, somewhere else i so that's a really interesting question that i haven't flushed out i made some initial comparisons um but we've obviously the the conflict goes on and i haven't 
thought about it again recently. Um, but I, a lot of the, the entities like Anonymous um, and others have a financial component to the activities that they take, whereas the IT Army, for the most part, is considered a patriotic activism, right? There's not, um, members are not looking for financial gain. Um, they're looking to support Ukraine. And so my gut assessment is that when you have a compelling story that your members are believe in, mm-hmm. then that type of activity is going to sustain longer than someone, especially in a protracted conflict, than someone that has financial interests at stake, who can take a pause from their regular operations mm-hmm. to focus on a conflict, but then maybe gets quote unquote bored with it and decides to move on to their next financial, mm-hmm. financially motivated target. Um, and so I think that has a has a role to play. But I, yeah, so I have... ideology is a stronger incentive than than material gain. Yeah, the idea the idea of um, you know. A lot of the rhetoric that is, is you see about in the narratives around the the Russian invasion and the the protracted conflict in Ukraine is one of um, fighting for democracy and freedom, mm-hmm. and uh, that's a pretty strong message. And um, and of course, uh, you know, I think that the Ukrainian government has done a pretty incredible job of um, of sustaining international interest and so as part of that you know i think that they've kept really really concerted efforts on sustaining the the it army interest in um by you know creative targets um continuing to acknowledge the support and and appreciate it if that makes sense and so it's been an interesting dynamic but yeah that's something that i'll have to Look at. I mean, there's other the other groups on the flip side um, that have often been floated as comparable would be like Killnet and and the other Russian entities. Um, but if you look at the dialogue amongst the members in those groups, it's much. Um, they are. It's not clean and friendly. It's not PG. Um, it's <laughs> it's a whole different world. Whereas uh, you know the ITRB when you look at the dialogue in between members and that they create in their um, telegram channel, it's a very, uh, you know, it's a focused effort that is on, um, you know, keeps on point, doesn't get sidetracked and uh, really maintains, I want to say, I don't want to say family, but that's the best way to describe it, a family atmosphere in the sense that it's not, um, it doesn't, doesn't turn nasty uh i guess is the way to put it like it's definitely um pro-ukrainian anti-russian right but it doesn't come out as being maliciously nasty um or inordinately trying to do that does that make sense it's aggressive but it's not um but it's not uh dirty and gross and nasty. yeah it's kind of like civil yeah civil yeah Mm-hmm. which I think is a really interesting aspect of it and distinguishes it, that group um, from many others that I've I've taken a look at. It's, it seems logical, again, in hindsight, uh, if you choose uh, the idea as your main cultural uh, basis of, uh, of uh, operation and uh, the yeah. existence in the first place, 
you have to maintain it, right? Right. And you have to use adjacent uh, ideas and practices as a result and not to pivot to something really nasty, as you said. Yeah. It's also yeah, a general yeah. phenomenon for, for for Ukraine, even with regular like protests or uh, stuff like that, right? If if you go back to 2014, it's like it's very different from many protests in many other countries, whether it's US, yeah, France, it or otherwise it would yeah. end up really really fast. You know? Yeah, have, exactly. Uh, not a single glass was broken until police started violence uh, on people. Other, so. Otherwise, it's it will not go anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for this conversation. I know we ran a little yeah, bit over, but it's uh, it's yeah. amazing. Good. I think that the only the, like the very last uh, question we typically ask is if you have any any advice or message to Ukrainian audience. No, um, I don't have any advice because uh, they have a wealth of experience that I do not have. But um, but I I'm rooting for you, and um, and I I think about Ukraine every day. Um, and so it's on the top of my mind and it's something I'm passionate about. And so I will continue to do research and hopefully share um, some messages. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's been very Thank insightful very for me Thanks. every time when, you know, uh, Vlad learns something or, or gets some idea for his uh, for his work in, in Ukraine. Like, I, I think that's a success. And this episode has definitely been that. Uh, so really well, appreciate it. Thanks for having time. me. I appreciate it. Um, and it was great to meet all of you. And Vlad, good to see you again. You grew a beard since I last saw you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Same here. Uh, really appreciate it. Thanks for the support. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I hope it's not the last time. Okay, sounds good.